Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Good, good. Hey, isn't the uh, sunshine a gift uh, this morning, right? Like I heard um, someone told me that we've gotten more sunshine yesterday and today than we did all of January. So uh, there's a lot for us to be smiling about. Thank you for coming to church. You all look beautiful. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, can you open them up to John chapter 12? We're going to be in John chapter 12 uh, this morning. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Just raise your hand. We have people coming down the aisles who would love to get a Bible to you. And uh, you can just raise your hand. We're going to kind of try to fly through this entire chapter this morning. We've got a lot to get into, so you're definitely going to want a Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, please keep that as our gift to you. And um, here's what I want to do. We've got so much to get through this morning. Um, I want to jump right into it. So if you're taking notes, the first thing you see is a big question, and I'm just going to throw that out to you right now. I want you to think about this. Here's my question for us this morning. It's this. What is the actual cost of following Jesus? What does it mean to actually follow Jesus? Like, what does that cost? If someone were to ask you, what does it cost you? to be a Christian? What does it cost you to follow Jesus? How would you answer? And the thing is, we need to have an answer for this because in Luke 14, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, if you want to follow me, count the cost. Like, I'm a little bit nervous for you if you're here and you're like, no, being a Christian is just always easy and it's great and it's something that I do and and, and there's no downside. There's nothing difficult. It's just what I am and it's very, very easy. What is the cost of following Jesus? And it's interesting. In John 12, there's a big transition in this book. You see, Jesus is entering into the final week of his life. He's going to enter into Jerusalem for the last time. And I was thinking about this this week. Imagine if a doctor said to you, hey, you've got a terminal illness and you've got one week left. In one week from today, you are going to die. Imagine how intentional that last week would look for you. Who would you talk to? Who would you hang out with? Who would you want to see? What would you want to say? I feel like every moment would be intentional. Nothing would be wasted. And this is what Jesus is doing. He knows that the end of this week ends with him on a cross. And the thing about John is you have to remember, John was just Jesus' best friend. So he's not trying to give us like this sequential list of events that happened during the last week. He's like, no, no, here's the important stuff. Here's what was on Jesus' mind. Here's the things that you can't miss. And a lot of John 12 is Jesus wrestling and the disciples wrestling with this idea of what does it cost to follow Jesus? So here's what I would say. This is one of those weekends where we've got to ask ourselves some pretty big questions and we kind of need to lean forward because this is an important weekend. So do me a favor. Can I see y'all lean forward physically a little bit in your chairs? Yeah, I like that. That makes me feel good. That's fun. That's what we got to be with our hearts this weekend because there's some big things we need to get after. So let's jump in. John 12, verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. If you were here last week, remember we talked about the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. So he's just been risen from the dead. And it says, so they gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. So he's just been risen from the dead. They're throwing this party. Hopefully they let the poor dude take a shower and brush his teeth, or else he's sitting by himself, right? Um, But he's like just alive again. And then verse 3, it says, Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment and made from pure nard, and he anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. 
and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was the one who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When a large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on the account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on the account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Right, so there's kind of these two things happening right off the bat. The first is they're having a party celebrating what Jesus did for Lazarus. And Mary, one of Jesus' closest friends, is so overwhelmed with gratitude and emotion for what Jesus has done for her family that she takes this really expensive perfume, she pours it on the feet of Jesus, and she starts washing his feet. And Judas it criticizes her. And she's like, he's like, she's wasting money. We could have fed a lot of people with this uh, perfume if we would have sold it. Hey, hey, why don't you care about the poor? And by the way, church, there's an entire message I could preach on this, but this is just a freebie this morning. Isn't it wild how the guy who's stealing from the other disciples is the first to criticize Mary for how she's using her money? One of the things I found is that the first to criticize and to throw stones at others usually is the problem themselves. We see that playing out in the text. But look how Jesus responds in verse 7. Jesus says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. That's not exactly a social gospel movement by Jesus, is it? He's like, the poor you're always going to have. There's always going to be the poor. Don't worry about them. Is that really what he's saying? Do you think Jesus was indifferent to the poor? Absolutely he was not indifferent to the poor. But here's what's happening. His mind is set on the crucifixion. He knows that this is the last few precious moments he's going to get with some of his best friends. And he's like, Judas, she's doing what's best. She's worshiping me. She's loving me. She is sacrificing for me. Why are you criticizing her? So you have that story going on, this weird interaction where Mary's getting criticized by Judas. Then you have this other one where Lazarus, you got to feel for this poor guy, right? All he does is get sick and die and Jesus raises him from the dead. And now the Pharisees, they want him to die again. People are believing in Jesus, and he's kind of like, look at this thing. Look what Jesus did. And Lazarus hasn't said anything. He hasn't done anything wrong. He's just a dude who Jesus saved. And because of what he represents, the Pharisees want him dead. He's like, man, I just was dead. It wasn't great. Please don't do that again. Okay, so why does John put these two things right next to each other, back to back? What's John trying to communicate? Here, here's what it is. Here's the first costly reality of what it means to follow Jesus. You can't protect your reputation. You can't protect your reputation. All right, look at me. I'm going to say this again because some of you really don't like this right now. You can't protect your reputation. It's impossible. And here's where this gets tricky because Proverbs says that a reputation or a good name is valuable. Proverbs 22.1 says that a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. And listen, church, you can for sure do things that ruin your reputation, right? All of us can make a decision today that will make certain that people don't view us in a good light. You can destroy your reputation, but you cannot protect your reputation, 
In John 12, in just these few verses, we have two examples of people doing nothing wrong. Mary is worshiping Jesus. Lazarus, he's just alive. And because of what he represents and because of Mary's worship, they're being criticized, their character's under assault, and their life is in danger. You can't protect your reputation. So I have a friend of mine who's a pastor, not, not at this church, but at another church. And um, a couple of months ago, uh, they had a family in their church come and they said, hey, we need to meet with a pastor. We need to counsel our marriages in trouble. And so our pastor was like, hey, we, we, their pastor was like, hey, I'd love to meet with you. I'd love to counsel. So he starts meeting with them. They start counseling. And in the counseling, it becomes very, very clear that kind of the crux of the problem in their marriage is, is that the husband is being a jerk. And so the pastor starts to speak into these things. And he says, hey, you're being um, really, really mean to your wife. And you've got to get your anger under control. And you're the, the leader of this family. And this is going to start with you. And you need to own your sin. And you need to seek forgiveness. And there's some things that need to change in your life. He's giving him good biblical counsel. Well, the man didn't have ears to hear it. So he got mad. He left counseling, that family left the church, but the, the man was so angry, he decided that to get the pastor back, what he needed to do was he needed to spread a lie or a rumor that this pastor was sleeping with multiple women in his church, that he was unfaithful to his wife, he was sleeping with other women. And the elders called this man and they say, did you start a rumor that this pastor is being unfaithful to his wife? And the guy's like, yeah, I made up that lie. I didn't like him, and I was mad, and I wanted to hurt him, so I made up a lie. But you know what the saying is, right? Like the lie is halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to get out the door. Right? Dozens and dozens of people hearing and believing that their pastor is being unfaithful to his wife. Why? Because he was doing the right thing, and a guy got mad and drug his reputation through the mud. You can't protect your reputation. Another pastor that I deeply respect, uh, not here, but in a church in another state, he plants a church and is faithfully leading the church and faithfully pastoring and loves his family, loves the Lord, loves his church. And he has a, an executive pastor, a number two. And um, out of nowhere, that executive pastor starts lying about him in the church, making up stories, trashing this pastor's name. And he's basically, this pastor is run out of the church with his family. And a decade later, the executive pastor comes back to this guy and he goes, you know what? I need to seek your forgiveness. Everything I said about you was false. And he's like, it's like that Satan got control of my heart and I was out of my mind and I was filled with jealous rage and I said things about you that were awful and it's wrong. But guess what? It, 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 for that guy's ministry, it was too late. You can't protect your reputation. And by the way, the Bible is filled with examples of this, right? Think about Joseph. Joseph is a slave in Egypt and he's working for a guy named Potiphar and he's a hard worker and he has integrity and he's honest and he's loyal and he gets elevated to head of Potiphar's house. Well, Potiphar's wife is attracted to Joseph and she comes on to him and wants to sleep with him and he refuses her. He's, he's loyal to his boss. He does the right thing. So she spreads lies about him and he's thrown in prison. Right, Daniel, he's a slave in Babylon and he works for the king and he's brilliant and he's smart and he's a hard worker and he's faithful and he's loyal. And the other magi, they get jealous. So they create new laws and they spread rumors and they say, this guy's a usurper and he's an insurrectionist and he's fed to a den of lions. Right, David, he's in the temple actively serving Saul. He's playing music to try to soothe Saul's spirit because Saul is struggling with anger. And in a fit of jealous rage, Saul grabs a spear and throws it at David's head. 
David's got to duck out of the way and run and flee to the wilderness to hide. You can't protect your reputation. And here's what I want to do. I want to park on this idea for a minute because I believe that maybe the most socially acceptable sin in the church today, the sin that we are all just okay with, is obsessing over what other people think about us. Like, can we have a moment of honesty in church right now? How many of you are people pleasers? That it's like, yeah, you struggle with what people think. Raise your hand. If you don't, I'll get mad at you, right? Be honest. So what I want to do is I just want to take a moment and I want to give you three thoughts about other people's thoughts. And the first thing I want to do is I want to call people pleasing and worrying about your reputation for what it is. Here's the first thing. Worrying about perception is self-absorption. When you are consumed with what other people think about you, when you're worried how you're being perceived, you are by definition being selfish. You're thinking about you. Your thoughts are focused on you. It's self-absorbed. I remember five or six years ago when my youngest son Judah was about three or four. You know, he was walking and and he was mobile and he could get in and out of the car and, and he was starting to get independent. And so I remember Mary called me from a grocery store and what had happened is, is she had all the kids and they had to run into, I think it was Lepinks, and had to pick up some groceries. And Mary did what she always did. She parked her car in the parking lot, opened up the door, and the kids were supposed to walk out. Judah has done this a hundred times before. Well, for some reason, this time, Judah decided it would be a good idea to do a swan dive onto the pavement. And he jumps out of the car head first, lands on the pavement right on his head, and he lands on a little pebble of asphalt. And it gets lodged in his head. And then it immediately swells into a goose egg. And Mary and I, we can't get the, the piece of pavement out of his head. So Mary calls me. She's a wreck. I'm like, well, call your dad. He's, he was a dentist. He might have some tools. See if he can get it out. So <laughs> he came over. He used dental glue and his pliers and stuff. He couldn't move it. It had swollen around the asphalt and it was stuck in his head. So then we take him to the doctor and the doctor's like, I've seen this happen before. Um, what's happened is, is the body's absorbed it and the body will get rid of it when it's ready. You just have to wait. There's nothing you can do. So for weeks, my son walked around with a rock stuck in his head. <laughs> okay, throw up the next slide. I don't know if you can see it. I tried to circle, but you see that little dark shade in the center of that circle? That's a piece of asphalt that's stuck in my kid's head. And by the way, then Judah loved it and was so proud of it. And he would go up to random strangers and be like, hi, I'm Judah. Do you want to see my rock? (laughs) Right? And Mary and I, we would say to ourselves like, oh my goodness, what are other parents going to think of us? Right? Our kid has a rock stuck in his head. Okay, but church, hear me. It's that thought right there. What are other people going to think of us? That's self-absorption. Can I ask you a question? Why are we making the fact that Judah turned his brain off and jumped out of the car head first? Why are we making that about us? It's not Mary's fault. It's just something that happened. But what we want to do is, is oh, do people think we're bad parents or are people going to judge us? We, we have this tendency in our heart to get self-absorbed really, really quickly. And by the way, do you know that the house on the end of the street of self-absorption is always misery? It always leads you to misery. Okay, here's the next thing that you need to see, that worrying about perception is imprisoning. It's imprisoning. I remember a few years ago, 
I preached at our Saturday night service, and a woman came up to me after the message, and she was fairly new to the church. I hadn't met her before, and she's like, hey, I just want to come, and I just want to say thank you for the message that you gave. It really was kind of hitting right where I live, and it was really impactful, and I, I, I just was really moved by it. Thank you. And I said, hey, you're welcome. Thank you for sharing that. That's super encouraging. Hope you have a great weekend. And uh, I went home Saturday night and told, even told Mary, like, hey, this lady said just really nice, kind thing about my message. Well, I show up for church at the nine o'clock service on Sunday, and it's 8.30. It's half an hour before church starts, and this woman's back. And I see her, and her face is all blotchy, and she's crying. She's teary, and she's literally trembling. And she walks up to me, and I'm like, are you okay? And she goes, I, I need to come and I need to seek your forgiveness. And I'm like, why? And she's like, well, I, I told you last night that your sermon was really good and impactful and I couldn't sleep last night because I'm worried that you took it, that your other sermons aren't good and I'm worried that you were offended that only this one was good and I'm a nervous wreck because I didn't want to hurt your feelings. And I was like, I never thought that for a second. I just took it as a compliment and I was thankful for it, but it was like such this vivid picture of how easily we can get in our own heads, right? Did nothing wrong, was just trying to give a compliment, but then goes home and there's this thing where it's like, no, did I say the right thing? Are they offended? Did I do something wrong? Have I ruined everything? It's all selfish thoughts that you can quickly get self-absorbed and it makes you imprisoned. And church, by the way, this is why social media is such a dangerous thing, especially for young people. Because the entire game of social media is who's paying attention to me. How many likes am I getting? Who's commenting on my post? Did this person or that person interact with me? How many views is my video getting? All of this can lock you up. Like we've gone through the statistics of how young, particularly young junior high and high school girls are more miserable and angry and disillusioned than they've ever been. And it's like, yeah, we're putting ourselves in prisons. It's going to rob you of joy and the very life Jesus wants for us. And then here's what I would say. My last thought about other people's thoughts. Here's a better way. Worry about what's right and let God defend. The way you live in freedom is you don't worry about how others perceive you. You worry about what's doing or doing what is right and allowing God to defend you. Psalm 28, this is what David writes as he's running for his life from Saul. He says, the Lord is my strength and my shield. In him, my heart trusts and I am helped and my heart exalts. And with my song, I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people and he is the saving refuge of his anointed. He's like, man, I'm not putting my hope in Saul for sure. It's the Lord that is my strength. He's my shield. He's my defender. He's my protector. Um, can I ask you a question? Have you ever sent someone a text and they just don't respond back to you for a couple of days? Doesn't that play games with your mind a little bit? Right, just this week I sent a text to a friend that I hadn't talked to in a little bit on Monday and I didn't hear back from him. He didn't respond all of Monday, all of Tuesday. And I knew what I'm preaching on, I knew what I'm thinking about and I was like, oh, awesome, Lord, thank you. This is a really great way for me to live out what I'm preaching this week. Right? Because when you send someone a text and they don't respond back, there's this temptation to be like, what's wrong? Are things okay? Is he mad at me? Did I offend him? Did I do something wrong? Are, are people saying things about me? What, what's the issue? And I was like, all right, Lord, here's the truth. I don't know of any issues between me and this man. I think our relationship's good. The text that I sent him, it wasn't mean. It wasn't discouraging. I don't think there's any way to take it the wrong way. 
If there is a problem that I'm unaware of, I'll deal with it when I'm aware of it, but I'm not going to worry about what he might or might not be perceiving about me. I'm just going to trust the Lord. I tried to encourage him. I tried to do what's right, and I'll let you defend me. And then guess what? On Wednesday, I get the text, and he's like, oh, what's up, dude? Sorry, I was out of the state the last couple days. Just got back to your text. Everything was good. It was a non-issue. But how much of our life is wasted and ruined by fear over things we can't control? Listen, I can't control what you think about, think about me. You can't control what others think about you. But you know what we can control? We can honor the Lord. We can love others well. We can be humble. When we do hurt someone or make a mistake or mess up, we can be quick to own it and seek forgiveness and try to make things right. And then the other thing we can do is trust that the Lord will defend us. Whose opinion are you living for? A cost of following Jesus is you can't protect your reputation. Let's keep going. So in verses 12 through 19, we're not going to read this, but this is the story of the triumphal entry. So Jesus gets on a donkey and he enters into Jerusalem for the last time. And if you remember the story, the people flood the streets because there's all of this noise about Jesus raising Lazarus. And they're waving palm branches and they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And there's like this moment where it looks like from the outside that Jesus is going to be accepted as the Messiah. But Jesus knows these same people are going to be shouting, crucify him in just a few days. Then look at verse 20. It says, now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So Jesus answered him, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain wheat of Unless a grain of wheat falls onto the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Okay, here's the second costly reality, church. It's this. It's that discipleship demands death. It's that discipleship demands death. Um, so there's some Greek people that are in Jerusalem. They see all the people gather the streets. They see them shouting Hosanna and they go to the disciples and they're like, hey, we're Gentiles, but can we follow Jesus too? We've heard of what he's done. We think he is truly the son of God. Can we worship him as well? And Jesus does something interesting. He gives this analogy about a grain of wheat falling to the ground and dying so that it can bear more fruit. He instantly turns the conversation to death. Look what he says in verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Well, where is Jesus going? He's going to the cross. And what he's saying to the Greeks is, hey, if you want to serve me, if you want to follow me, are you ready to die? Because this is going to look different than what you thought it was going to look like. Church, you can't escape the reality that death is central to the Christian faith. We are saved because God himself died for our sin. And as followers of Jesus Christ, there are things that we are called to die to. Well, Cal, what are you talking about? I don't understand. Well, let's lay that out. Here's three things that we're called to die to. Here's the first. Uh, we're called to die to sin. There's death to sin. 
Paul in Romans 6, he says this, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Okay, listen. Every single one of us in here, myself included, have things in our mind and in our heart that we know dishonor the Lord, that we don't want to submit to Jesus's rightful rule and reign. There's things we say and do and think or how we respond that rebel against God's law, his character, and his will for our lives. That might be anger or how you deal or respond when you're angry. It might be pride. It might be selfishness. It might be what we just talked about, obsessed with how others perceive you. There might be certain crutches that you run to. There might be unhealthy habits or idols or addictions in your life. And listen, here's what I'm trying to say. As a follower of Jesus Christ, we can't just be cool with these things. We can't just settle for a watered down faith that says, hey, you know what? I know that I've got some things in my life that aren't great, but God loves me anyways, and I'm always gonna struggle with these things, and and things are always gonna be this way, and this is just how it is going to be. Like, can I ask you a question? What are you actively dying to in your life right now? Right, Paul says that we wage war against the flesh. What in your life are you at war with? Like, I love that I'm giving this message February the first weekend because in January, it's all like, this year's the new me. And I've got my resolutions and things are gonna change. Hey, can I ask you a question? How is that going? Are you still at war? Are you still changing? Are there things in your life where it's like, I'm not gonna settle for what's less than what God would have for me? Church, there should be a holy discontent in all of our hearts that says, listen, I do not want to be in the exact same place and be the exact same person in six months from now that I am today. Listen, Jesus has given us his spirit to empower us to have victory in this life, that there is no temptation that has overtaken us, that we have help in every single instance and time that we need it. Jesus is there to help us. Why would we punt on all of these things to stay the same person? Because that's easy. It's not following Jesus. Jesus says you have to die to sin. What terrifies my heart is that there are people that come here and fill these chairs every single weekend and you listen to great worship music and you hear biblical preaching and you're completely unaffected and unmoved. And you believe you're following Jesus. Where is your heart soft? Here's the next thing we need to die to. We need to die to control. There's a death to control. Jesus is communicating to these Greeks. He's saying, listen, if you want to follow me, it's going to be very different than what you think following me is going to look like. You're going to have to give up control. James in James 4 says this, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Here's what James is saying. When we've got these plans and visions for our life that we're unwilling to submit to the Lord, here's what I'm going to be, here's what I'm going to do, and I'm not seeking the Lord saying, hey, if this is your will, and if you allow, and I'm trusting in you and your control, he goes, that's actually evil, and it's arrogance, and it's boasting. And if you think about it, everything that's happening in John 12, it's a battle for control. Judas, he wants financial control. Hey, I don't like that she's spending this perfume on Jesus because we could sell it and I could get more money if she sells the perfume. He wants control of the money. 
The Pharisees, they want political power and control, and Jesus is messing with their system. And the Jews are following him, so they're freaking out because he is a threat to their control. The disciples, they want to be secure. They're like, Jesus, you keep talking about dying. You shouldn't go to Jerusalem. You shouldn't be here. It's too dangerous. They're freaking out because their leader keeps talking about going away. Everyone wants control. And Jesus... The one who is in control of all things. What has he done? He is setting his mind to laying down control, laying down his life, accomplishing the will of the Father so that we might be saved. Church, listen to me. Christianity does not play nice with control freaks. We are not God. We are not sovereign. We are not in control of all things. In fact, I would make the argument we are in control of very, very little. Shockingly little. The question is, is are you okay with that? Right? All of us are one phone call from the doctor away from our lives changing in a significant way forever. You have to give up this need for control if you're going to follow and trust Jesus. There is no trusting Jesus without saying, Jesus, you are Lord and you are ruler and your way is good. It's better than mine and I trust you. You have to die to control. Here's the third. We need to die to ourselves. We need to die to ourselves. Paul says it best in Galatians 2.20. He says this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Tim Keller, a pastor, he said it this way. He goes, when a Christian grasps, listen to this. When a Christian grasps how Jesus saved us at infinite cost to himself, how he emptied himself of his glory and took on a humble form to serve our best interests. It creates a grateful joy that inwardly moves us to want to please and know and resemble him. He's saying, listen, when we truly get what Jesus did for us, how he came to earth, how he humbled himself, how he was always working in our best interests, our hearts can't help but say, hey, Jesus, it's all about you now. I am no longer on the throne of my life. And listen, when I'm with my friends, I want to encourage them and I want to love them, but I want to be about you. And when I'm at work, I want to work hard and I want to carry your name. And, and I don't worry about what people think about me. I worry about what people think about you. And I call myself a Christian and I don't want to do anything that would smear the name of Christ. So I'm going to work hard. I'm going to work with integrity. And when people ask me what my motivation is, you know what I'm going to say? Man, I love Jesus and he's done so much for me that I just want to honor him in whatever I do. It can't be about us anymore. Can you honestly say that's your heart's desire as you walk into this room today? Have you died to yourself? Let's keep looking. Let's keep going. Let's look at verse 37. It says, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So the word was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us and whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 39, therefore they could not believe. For Isaiah again said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand them with their heart in turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, listen to this, many, even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Look at verse 43. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Can I just let the weight of verse 43 hang over us for a second? 
For they loved the glory that comes from man more than they loved the glory that comes from God. It says that many people believed, but they didn't want it to cost them anything. The Pharisees would kick them out of the synagogue if they believed in Jesus, so they just kept quiet. Here's the third costly reality, church. You have to make a glory choice. Whose glory are you going to live for? You see, this threat of getting kicked out of the synagogue was a real thing. And back then, the synagogue, it's not like how we think of church today. The synagogue is, was the center of the Jewish community. It's where you would go every night to hang out after work. The kids would play sports together. The women would make clothes together. It's where book club was. It's where the coffee shop was. It was the center of community for the Jewish people. And if you were kicked out of the synagogue, it's like you were excommunicated from the entire city. You might have to move. This threat was real. They're like, I don't want to lose my friends and my relationships and my community and my life is good and my life is easy. And yeah, I think Jesus probably is the son of God. I think he's the Messiah, but believing in him or saying it out loud is going to cost me too much. So they chose the glory of man over the glory of God. Listen, give me your eyes for a second. In America, in 2024, in our culture, Christians are never going to have a seat at the cool kid table. Right? When you tell people, hey, I believe that this Bible that's two to 3,000 years old, that it is the inerrant word of God and it holds absolute truth, people are going to look at us like we're bonkers, right? Like, what are you talking about? Right? When we say, hey, there's an authority out there that's higher than what you feel. And that we are going to stand and give an account to an almighty, eternal creator God. That's going to exclude us from the cool kids table. We're never going to be seen as the inclusive, hip, relevant, progressive crowd. And I'm totally fine with it. You know why? Because the cool kid table is an illusion. It's an illusion. Do you know what cool is? Cool is having conviction. Cool is being certain. Cool is having a foundation that you tie yourself to that's greater than yourself. And by the way, that's what everyone in our world is looking for, right? 2,000 years later, Jesus is providing what every heart is looking for. Here's the problem with following Jesus. You have to die to yourself. And you've got to lose this concern for your reputation. And it can't be about you anymore. There were people in the crowd who were saying, man, I am more about me and what I want than what's real. And that's Jesus Christ as Lord. Uh, one of the men in my life that I grew to respect very, very deeply, it was Mary's late uncle. His name was Steve Troxel. And Steve passed away of cancer, I think, 12 years ago now. And uh, Steve uh, got a cancer diagnosis. And it was one of those things where this is terminal. This is going to kill you. And you have, I can't remember, I'm a little fuzzy on how long the time period was. But it was like you have six months or you have a year, but this cancer is going to take you. And Steve was always a man who sincerely loved the Lord, a good man, a kind man. But he was one of those men, when he got that cancer diagnosis, rather than retreating into a shell, it actually accelerated everything that was good about this man. And he's like, if I've got six months or if I've got a year, Jesus has all of it. And he would go to the hospital and he would encourage patients who were going through cancer and he would witness to his nurses and his doctors and he was more involved with his church and he would give speeches to the people in his church to encourage those who were suffering and he would encourage the pastors and he was really intentional with Chris and I because he loved the fact that we were going into full-time ministry. And I remember I was talking with Chris just a couple weeks ago about this and, and Chris says, the thing that I always remember 
He said, my uncle Steve said, my only regret is it took this cancer diagnosis to light this fire under my butt. He goes, I wish I would have spent the last 60 years with this same exact passion because following Jesus boldly is the best thing in the entire world. There's so much life, there's so much joy, there's so much blessing. Okay, do you wanna know how my messed up mind works? One of the things we say at our church is that, and we believe this, that we believe firmly in the power of prayer. That God hears our prayers and he answers us and he draws near to us when we call out to him. So in order to model this, you, if you've been here, you know this. At the end of every service, we have pastors and elders who stand up front and all we wanna do is pray with you. If you're hurting or if you're struggling or if you're concerned or if you need prayer. Now here's what I want you to do. Look around this room for a second. In a room this size with this many people, how many people in here have worries of things coming up this week? How many people are hurting? How many people have a situation in their life where they don't know what to do and they need wisdom? How many people need to be seeking the Lord and praying? And so here's how my mind works. How many of you at the end of a service should be coming up and seeking prayer, but you won't do it because you're worried that other people will see you come up and ask for prayer and you're worried what other people will think? That's so lame, right? Do me a favor, turn to your neighbor and say, that's so lame. Right? How many of us settle for less than authentic Christ-glorifying worship because we're worried that we forgot to put on deodorant and if we raise our hands in worship, people are going to smell our armpits or it's going to get weird. <laughs> hey, can't do it. I'm worried about what other people think of me. Right? How many people... Your marriage is hurting and you're struggling and you feel like you're drowning, but you won't be honest in small group because you're not willing to admit that you've messed up. Like, what are we doing? Jesus is here and he meets with us and there's help and he's given us a family to do this walk of life with and we don't do it because we want the glory of man. You have to get over yourself if you're gonna follow Jesus. You have to make a glory choice. Look at verse 44. We're gonna end with seeing Jesus speak. I love this. You can tell Jesus sees this and he's feeling all of this and he's gotta say something. He said, and Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into this world as a light so that whoever believes in me, that he may not remain in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not only spoken on my own authority, but the Father who has sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Look at verse 50. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say is the Father has told me. Okay, church, here's the good news. There's a lot of cost to following Jesus, but the reward for following Jesus is eternal. See what Jesus is saying there? He's like, guys, listen. I'm not just saying this on my own authority. I have come to be a light. I have come to show you God himself. He's saying, I am God's plan for salvation. And if you believe in me, and if you trust me, and if you hear me, you will be saved. I've come to be a light so that you don't have to live in darkness anymore, so that you can see that there's a reality where you can be fully known and fully loved. There's not anyone in this room that has to doubt for a second whether or not they're loved by God, because Jesus says that I've come because I love you and I love my sheep and I've come to save you. 
And he goes, listen, the words that I have spoken, my father have given me and his words are eternal life. That there is a glory that is real. And if Jesus was the son of God, if he died on the cross and if he rose again, that means that everything he said about eternity, that he goes in to prepare a place for us, that there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, that we will be reunited with our loved ones, that we will walk the streets of gold. All of it's true. Because the words of Jesus were the words of God himself. Have you counted the cost? Have you followed this Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I uh, thank you for your word. And uh, God, I'm thankful how in a chapter that seems so hectic and so many different things happening, I just love how your word is so applicable for us today. And it cuts to our heart and it demands authenticity and transparency. God, would you give our church a heart that loves you so much, that is so in awe of what you've done for us, that we're willing to count the cost with joy that when we see how much you've loved us, how you have elevated what we have needed so much more than you elevated what was easy for you. Man, we should be the most joyful people in the entire world. God, would you help us? Would you help us to die from self-absorption and the imprisonment that other people's thoughts can put us in? Would we love you in a way that's honest? Would we respond to you with genuine worship? We need you. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.